Okay, everybody, welcome to the final Sunday edition of This Week in Startups for 2022. And we thought it would be an interesting thing to do for the VC Sunday Schools segment to have Molly talk about her first year as a venture capitalist. Yeah, it happened. Uh, We, of course, also, a thing that was pioneered as part of my first year here at launch this week in Climate Startups. We have one last interview for you, and I'm Mm. excited because it's one of the big dogs like one of the ogs Mm. of climate tech investing uh g2 venture partners which of course was a spin out from kleiner's billion dollar green growth fund and of course john Doerr being Mm -hmm. one of the pioneers of the space so it's really like kind of a perfect Mm. way to end this week in climate startups perfect uh bookend yes yeah there you go yeah it's gonna be a great show stick with us this week in startups is brought to you by microacquire MicroAcquire helps startups find buyers. They'll help you start conversations that can lead to an acquisition in just 30 days or free at try.microacquire.com slash twist. And Crowdbotics. Great ideas can change the world. And Crowdbotics is the fastest way to turn those ideas into code. Get a free scoping session for your next big app idea at crowdbotics.com slash twist. All right, Molly. DC Sunday School is coming to an end year one. You're yeah. uh, finished your freshman year and you're going to be a sophomore next year. Sophomore year coming up. How was your freshman year? I gained 15 pounds. <laughs> I partied so hard. I ran up tons of credit card debt. I failed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I told you to stay. I told you stay away from the waffle station in the uh, cafeteria. He did. He was like, never go to the buffet. But did I no. listen? No, no. Mm. Yeah, we thought we could do a fun VC Sunday School kind of learnings and surprises. Um, and then also, uh, asked our producers to gather some of the favorites because our audience has loved this segment. I have been so surprised by how many founder meetings I've taken where they've referenced it, talked Ah. about learnings from it. Yeah. So I think it's the other side of the table is interested, you know, in, in their, um, in their partner and how their partner is making decisions, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's Mm. just been super, it's really been interesting. I mean, of course it's been really fun to learn in public. Mm. And then also, I think it's really been useful for our audience. But yeah, so I wrote up um, some brief like learnings. Okay. And I got to say, like, my number one surprise is how much I like it. Okay. Say yep. more. What is it about this profession, uh, you know, in your first year that um, you really have found interesting, joyful? Uh, and then maybe you could compare it to your previous uh, gigs uh, as a uh, commentator, host, journalist. Yeah. I like. I mean, I think the the primary part that I like about it is somewhat similar to journalism in that it's mm-hmm. different every day. You know, it's this right. massively wonderful variety of founders to talk to, different ideas, different ways that they're constructing their businesses. So it's it's got this, it's just exciting for a person like me who has mm-hmm. a butterfly brain to yep. get to have these varying conversations all the time and to be learning so much. The fire hose of knowledge is just mm-hmm. like the my preferred way to be living. So that is very exciting. But compared to journalism, it's, and I've said this before, like, it's not cynical. Mm. And that's not to say that we are relentlessly, and if anything, I've spent the year learning to be potentially less positive Uh (laughs) about everyone I talk to, (laughs) because like every new VC, like I felt I did the exact same cliche and wanted to invest in everyone. So reasonable. Yeah. yeah, You know, like, I guess I'm not going to be that different from everyone else who comes to this job and gets yeah. excited about everything. But even when we, but when we decide not to invest, it's not like, it's not rooted in skepticism in this kind of, it's not mm. a teardown. No. Right. It's like, I did the math. Yep. I applied fundamental thinking. Yeah. Yes. I evaluated the founder, but most of the time we just did the math. I mean, one of the top learnings for me was the, math the way to think about the ownership percentage and the valuation the potential return and just putting everything through a totally different lens like that's just been a real shift in thinking for me you're placing a bet uh and so placing a bet is different than uh you know hey this uh this person is somebody i like or this idea is an idea i like i Mm -hmm. love you could love an idea you could love a founder you could love a product but you could hate the deal yeah. Uh, you could hate the bet, right? And so I would like to bet, I would. I wish I could wake up every day and they said, 
oh, you know, you could bet on this movie, this musician, uh, this painting, this painter, and it, it it could have the returns of venture capital. And the, the the truth is, that's just not the game we're in. We're in the company mm-hmm. building game. Not all companies are created equal. So I think it's, um, that's an important lesson. You know, you, sometimes when people play poker, they want to play every hand, because every hand does have potential. Oh, what if right. I hit the next three cards perfectly? But that's not how you would play poker or any other thing. So you got to, as uh, Annie Duke would say, the famous poker player, she has a book, who's very good, uh, Thinking in Bets. So you're now starting to think in bets. Hey, I'm going to place four, five, six bets a year. I'm going to do that. And over 10 years, have 40, 50, 60, 70 companies I have selected as a venture capitalist. You know, I, I have to pick the best amongst all the ones I meet. I, I don't get to invest in all. I just wrote that down on my envelope, <laughs> which is getting pretty full after a whole year of like little notes. Yeah, little notes. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a hundred percent true. And and adopting and applying that mindset, which is different from like a patron mm. mindset, right? There are ways to support a business or arts or movies or whatever Certainly. it is. But yeah, thinking in bets, I think, was probably my sort of top learning, which mm. on some level I expected, right? I yeah. told people very often, I'm not super worried about my ability to understand business models or evaluate founders or even even um correctly anticipate a market mm-hmm. right. but <laughs> i said i'm worried about the math <laughs> and yeah. that turned out to be the biggest thing not not how to do the math but how right. to think in math we had many discussions here about things like the total addressable market the pricing of the product mm-hmm. the cost of the goods being sold i.e hardware businesses versus software businesses so the business model really matters the market size matters you know and uh everybody likes to say it's about the founder and to an extent that is true but you know if you force the founder to run a dry cleaner you know i I don't know that they're going to turn it into google (laughs) it's not possible (laughs) right so (laughs) you just have to there's there, there sometimes founders will pick something that is just not venture fundable. We we see that all the time. Or we see something that, you know, the the founder is going to have to learn a lot of hard lessons because they might have some very strong ideas or beliefs, and maybe we can see something they can't see. Uh, yeah. And then sometimes we don't see what they see, and we miss the bet, right? And so nobody's perfect. Nobody bats a thousand. The goal is to have a process. The goal is to learn and to get lucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is the nature of the game, right? You have to get lucky sometimes. And, you know, sometimes people get lucky with a 50x, a 500x, or a 5,000x. All of those result in a good career. Um, that actually is a good up, good setup for one of the oh. surprises. One of the things okay. that sort of surprised me um, was the extent to which, and I mean this with all love and respect. Yeah. Founders are winging it. Mm. Like, especially yeah. first-time founders, right? Like, yeah. at the early stage... And first-time founders, I, in the beginning, I think, went into every meeting assuming some level of almost equal expertise. Right. And then over the course of the year, realized every founder is doing it a little bit different. There isn't some like playbook that they all read. I mean, we are making that playbook for them week after week with the Founder University podcast. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it exists. advice, strategy advice, yeah. Super tactical strategy advice. But in the absence of that, people are constructing their businesses in all different kinds of ways. And so, you know, I would, so like small examples would be not every founder has a data room. Crazy. Not every founder knows how to do accounting. Not every founder. I I had one conversation where I said, what are your margins? And they didn't know what I meant. Yes. So uh, what you've also learned here is it's not like there is a founder school dare I say university university, perhaps where (laughs) the, absolute fundamentals of running a company are taught it does mm-hmm. not exist in the world um or it did not and now it does and i just want to say for the people who are watching uh live these poor people <laughs> these poor people hey, oh it's a kid isn't it and he fell and he lost his board and now they're having to like carry it up the hill yeah this happens oh, sometimes peanut, you, go for, the, you go for the deep pow they're going for the deep pow pow and they go for the deep powder sometimes those boards they can get lost. There's four feet of powder out there. Uh, for people who don't Ooh. know, I'm, I'm up in Tahoe and we set up my new studio and we decided we would take this crazy risk of moving from the movie theater 
you know, which was fine. But then I was in the movie theater producing podcasts for y'all. <laughs> and then the kids couldn't be in the, the movie theater and it was creating a little mm. tension in the household. So now I literally put in my bedroom, uh, my studio, and I'm looking out on the mountain. And you get to see the mountain as well. So you'll see people ski by. I told people on a call yesterday. And you really want to look this up because this is comedy. This poor two people who I assume are a parent and child <laughs> are just struggling trying to walk up the hill yes. and they keep going down. Oh, it's amazing. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> youtube.com slash this weekend or, or I think Spotify, you can just click and turn on the video now. And uh, there's a separate feed on separate feed on iTunes this is something the uh, Apple podcast, sorry. Um, something the podcasting industry has to be standardized, which is the ability to just switch between video and audio. Um, Anyway, just, by the way, if you do go to YouTube yeah. uh, slash this weekend hmm. there, we have made a playlist of all the Sunday episodes. Oh, great. So there is so a nice the little playlist that yeah. has all the VC Sunday schools great. and all the this weekend climate startups. Yeah. So good. Good way to get caught up on some of those. Microacquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that cuts out everybody in the middle. Basically, that means they're going to help startups get acquired efficiently. If you're a founder looking to sell your startup, your project, your side hustle, well, you should know Microacquire is free, it's private, and there's nobody in the middle to screw it up. Trust me, I've seen so many times these brokers in the middle screw up a deal. You know why? Man, they might be looking out for the buyers more than the sellers because you sell your company once, maybe twice in a lifetime, but the buyers of companies might be buying 10 companies a year. It's the opposite of Microacquire. Microacquire has already helped hundreds of startups get acquired. This is such a great idea. I don't know why I didn't come up with this. And they facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars in closed deal volume. Their platform includes over 120,000 buyers. Now, these buyers have skin in the game because they pay $390 a year for access to the database uh, and this marketplace of companies looking to sell. And these startups are all vetted. So if you have thousands of vetted startups currently listed for sale and 120,000 buyers, what's going to happen? Successful acquisitions. And the founders get free access and instant access to these 120,000 trusted buyers who, uh, you know, they pay for access. I pay for it. And I'm interested in buying some newsletters right now. And buyers like me can browse the listings for free. And the platform, of course, is totally free for sellers. Sign up for a premium $390 a year uh, access to all the deal info at try.microacquire.com slash twist. Once again, try.microacquire.com slash twist. And if you want to list your company, go to the same URL. Okay, so this was something that was shocking to you. You thought, hey, you'd have the filmmakers show up and they knew how to use the camera. They knew mm -hmm. how to use the lighting. They knew how to do sound. They knew how to write a screenplay. They knew how to direct actors. And the truth is, in our business, uh, people are learning on the job. They're learning mm -hmm. as they go. They don't know what insurance is. They don't know about board meetings. And so it's something we, as venture capitalists uh, in the industry, we can be of great service. And that's why we created Founder University, uh, founder.university. You can join it. And also, we... Um, do things like board meeting training, right? And so different VCs, different investors will do different levels of training. I'm curious, post investment, and I know you did about five mm -hmm. of these investments this year. Congratulations for about 2 million. Uh, it's a good first year. We'll see if we can double it next year. Uh, that's you know, my and, plan. That's the plan. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to find. It's a new, it's a new vertical, right? This is a new, right? Although there have been, you know, sustainability companies and energy companies for a long time, Climate is just starting to get a large number of entrepreneurs into it um, and mm -hmm. a large number of investors. So I'd say it's still very early days uh, for this. But post-investing, what have you learned? Have you had any lessons post-investing in terms of helping companies or, uh, you know, what what happens after you make the investment? Yeah, I think that is where a similar version of the founders are winging it. Yep. Learning has come into play, yep. right? It's like, okay, you've been funded at anywhere from $100,000 to almost a million dollars. Right. And there are huge chunks of this that you're still figuring out. Yep. That's where I have seen focus, mm -hmm. a thing that we talk about constantly, yes. <laughs> become a very specific issue mm. for founders yep. and have had to kind of say like, hey, maybe mm. it's yeah. on this side quest. And, and yeah. are you really, are we sure about that? And it's, it's been a matter of kind of, figuring out what permission I do and do not have to mm -hmm. offer that guidance and, and See, realizing sure. that it is actually our job of to be like a little bit of a parent because they're winging it. Sometimes uh, people are uncomfortable with the coach or parent analogy, but mm -hmm. if you uh, have been in business for 30 years and the person is in year one, 
pretty much you're, you you want to say big brother, big sister, parent, child, sensei, Padawan, Jedi, you know, whatever you want to say, coach, player, player, coach. Yeah. There, there are going to be, uh, in the best of cases, um, things that a VC or a former founder VC or a former journalist VC has seen in the world that could help a first or second time founder, somebody who's got only a couple of years. And also you're outside the business. So you have some objectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about how to say things to a founder. If you're investing in the right founders, they, you know, should be open to, uh, you know, having vibrant discussions i'm using the word vibrant as you know a nice way of saying intense they Mm -hmm. could be intense they could be contentious they could be drawn out but let's just say you know real talk you got to be able to have that real real talk talk. and you don't want to be the director because they have to you're not you might be backseat driver obviously so i like to phrase it as hey um do we have product market fit yet and it's like Yes, we do. I'm like, okay, so every month we're growing 20%, 10, 20%. It's like, no, we're not. So let me ask the question again. Do we have strong product market fit? So you see, I'm mm-hmm. kind of leading the witness. I know they don't have product market fit, but I'm walking them through my thinking. Okay, yeah. so we, we don't grow consistently. So maybe there's a lot more work to be done here on product market fit. And they're like, yeah, actually, yeah, actually, when you say it that way, J. Cow, I kind of agree. Okay, great. Um, I noticed the side quests, <laughs> the three of them, the podcast, um, the nonprofit, and the micro fund you asked me about starting. Um, until we have product market fit, can we put those maybe, or have you considered putting those on the not right now list? Mm-hmm. And you can just make a not right now list, things you want to do in your life. And you can just put those there so you don't forget them. And so mm-hmm. you know that they're important to you. Put them on the not right now list. And then let's get product market fit because you've got how many months of runway left? Oh, 14. What do you need to show in order to convince new investors, not me, because we made our bet. Uh, but what do you have to show new investors to get them to invest? Do you think? I haven't thought about that. What do you think? <laughs> so this is the right. this is how you can have a conversation that isn't you're not growing 20%. Don't do anything until you grow 20%. If you try that with a child, we all know what happens. Right. <laughs> Can't tell a teenager like, you know, get all you know, don't use your iPad. It's like, okay, have you done your homework? Mm. Like I had this with my daughter mm-hmm. recently where I was like, you missed a couple of days of school here. Summer school is going to be something you're going to have to start thinking about getting ready for. So this summer, you're going to miss four or five weeks when we're maybe, um, you know, out with your, your, your sisters doing stuff and your friends are out because too many days off means you, you might not pass a class and uh, you mm-hmm. go to summer school to catch up. And then my daughter was like, what? It's <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of yeah. how it works. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a thing. I had it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, and no, that's I, true. That's what se- second year will be for you. Your sophomore year will be a lot about being on the boards of companies and, you know, helping companies that come to you and say, hey, you remember you gave us some money? We ran out. And you're like, okay, you give us more. And it's like, uh, no, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we, right. Our investment team couldn't get there. We don't invest in bridge rounds. You have to get new money to mark this round. And so we're going to stand pat. It's a tough conversation. Job is not well, easy. Well, that's, I mean, that's what's so, I I am certain that I will look back and say I was profoundly lucky mm. to be learning this profession when a downturn arrived. Same Because more. there have already been a whole new slate of things to learn mm. because of the conversations we're having now that the fundraising environment has completely closed. Yep. Right? That, that like, investing has shut down in some ways it's much much harder to raise we already operated with and i tell people this all the time that mm-hmm. when they ask me like one of the you know what is your biggest takeaway from going to work at launch and going to work for jason mm-hmm. i always say that the rigor mm-hmm. with which we do our jobs mm-hmm. is incredible and makes me proud to be here like huh, we right, are a yeah. rigorous firm right i will so. say like i've seen people bring us a deal where every one of his friends is on it <laughs> and it's like it's the hot new social game in town he'll be like that valuation makes no sense no we're not doing it like yeah. discipline we have discipline as a firm it's and a, it's a good thing to have discipline it's a yeah great thing yeah have some thoughtfulness about it. now that doesn't mean you can't get frisky once in a while i, I am a fan of you know if you want to take some wild swings at bat you know and you and you earn it because you got a great track record yeah sure you can you can 
like what they call it in um in a in a basketball game when Steph Curry like takes a, f- a shot like five feet behind the line after he hit three in a row, <laughs> takes a logo <laughs> shot. He yeah, logo shot. He checked. Is that what they call it? A heat, a heat check? check. You know, like I just hit three That's in a row. Funny. Okay, screw it. I'm going to take one from the logo. Let's just right. see exactly how hot I am. You're like, bang, yeah, go <laughs> for it. Check. Get you right. All right, great ideas often fail in the planning phase, and a vast majority of successful plans utilize the existing best practices. This is especially true when you're talking about software and apps, and Crowdbotics gives you access to all the best practices for your specific app. Crowdbotics offers pre-built app templates to plan your builds faster. This means you can stop building from scratch and start using the same architecture of industry leaders. You can think about Crowdbotics as CTO as a service, you know, your chief technology office. If you're not sure where to start, well, Crowdbotics also offers professional scoping to help you flesh out your project at the MVP stage and beyond. So let the folks at Crowdbotics show you how it works. Schedule a free scoping session. This is where they tell you what it's going to cost and how you're going to build your MVP and product. And they're going to give you a free detailed build plan. So here's what you do. Crowdbotics.com slash twist. That's crowdbotics, B-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash twist to get your free scoping session. But we have rigor. Yeah. And then we're now saying to companies, you need to have the same rigor and Mm. our expectations are are going up also so then now the conversations about valuation are totally different the conversations about what's happening to companies is totally Mm -hmm. different the advice that we're giving is totally different and it's just a it's like we took an already rigorous process and are adding another layer to it and that Mm -hmm. is a whole next level learning Mm -hmm. that you know if i had come in 2020 or 2019 and just been like rolling through the bubble i would have learned a lot but now i'm going to learn even more even faster you would have learned the the wrong lessons which would have been like we would have conversations like oh my god this deal is closing so fast jcal oh it closed we missed it we missed it again and they just had another up round and we missed it and uh, you know and we would have had a 10x in six months and it's like and now the company's out of business (laughs) (laughs) okay so but actually we, we missed we missed ftx we missed Luna. Oh no! You know we we missed WeWorks last round. Whatever you know, we missed Theranos. Like you, you can sometimes missing is like yeah. a gift. Like <laughs> sometimes missing is winning. It's a really patience is on my list as a learning. I'm mm. not saying I have learned it, mm. but a part of learning patience has mm. been having to overcome my journalistic instinct to get there first. Like I have, I hate getting beat. Mm. As a journalist, I always hate getting beat or I hate it when I wrote a story and then it shows up in the New York Times like, oh, my God, look at this story. And I'm like, I wrote that story six months ago. Yeah, exactly. There's this journalistic competition in me Mm, mm. that I have had to overcome in terms of learning patience about startups. A hundred percent. Like a hundred percent. I will cop to being like, I'm a guy. You got to you want to win. It's all good. Those are good qualities to have. And patience also very good. A lot of times we you've had companies come to you with crazy, you know, um, expectations, and Mm -hmm. they didn't hit them, they came back and they had different expectations. Um, Or they had more discipline, or they went out of business, etc, etc. And then even when you do make an investment, you have all these expectations, and then it still fails because seven out of 10 fell. So now you'll even be like, wow, even when I did make a bet, I lost. (laughs) It's like, ooh, you got to get used to losing a lot of hands uh, with the hope. And this is where on a you really have to reprogram your brain. I think the human brain is not constructed to appreciate the power law. And it is, that's why the power law, and they write books about it, or the Pareto principle exists. And when people learn about the Pareto principle, they talk about it. Oh my God, 20% of people pay 80% of the tax. Oh my God, 80% of people get 20% of that. You know, it's like, there's, everybody freaks out about the Pareto principle and looks for it everywhere in the world as mm-hmm. a, mental model and the reason it's a mental model is because it, your brain doesn't naturally understand it i just don't yeah. your brain doesn't naturally understand that all this losing can be made up for by but one win but one yeah. win and that in your career if you keep up at this pace or a slightly faster one 100 companies you invest in 95 percent of your um returns will be in two of them and you and you mm-hmm. don't know which two <laughs> well i talk about right. humbling you know yeah. be humble 
Yeah. Be humble. Very important. Did you have? I'm also excited for in year two oh. to. Um, I have taken every meeting yes. this year. Yes. Business model be damned. Why not? And I will continue to probably take more meetings than I should. But I also am starting to realize like which business models we prioritize, which business yeah. models work, which ones are likely to be investable. And so I hope because generally I was surprised by the ratio of meetings to investments, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a small number overall of the meetings yeah. that we take as a firm that we yeah. end up investing in. And then I think and hope that in year two, that ratio for me will, it'll still be a small number compared to the meetings, mm -hmm. but that I'll, the meeting use will be more efficient. You'll have more inbound and you'll mm -hmm. be able to say, oh, we don't invest in this category. Yeah, We exactly. don't invest in this region. We don't invest in this business model. We have an investment in this one. So over time, you know, when somebody emails me and they want to do, you know, a, a hardware device, they want to make the best you know, security camera ever, I'm like, that's a pretty high bar. Mm -hmm. Because we invest in one that didn't work out. Uh, and we see ones for $30 on, uh, you know, Amazon, or three for 100. So right. we, we kind of know what to expect here. And then all of a sudden, Deep Sentinel comes along. And they say, yeah, it's not the camera. It's we have live operators watching your camera. When somebody goes there with facial recognition, we know if it's you, your wife, your kids, or a new person. And if that new person is your gardener, you can then tag them in the system. And we know it's the gardener. But if it's somebody else, we'll have a conversation with them over a two way speaker. And then we'll let them know we're calling the cops if they're breaking the window, and they need to get out of there. So live cameras from Deep Sentinel was like, Oh, it's not about the hardware. The hardware mm -hmm. is like just an enabling part of this. It's really about the service of having live security guards watching your cameras 24 hours a day, right instances and you know, calling the cops when they need to. So you start to really um again build mental models it's important mm -hmm. and uh, you will narrow your selection and the meetings will have a higher hit rate in terms of investability over time and reputation is part of that too now we are very um open to meeting with a lot of people because i never one of the tenets of our firm other firms have different approaches obviously mm -hmm. i'm like to invest only in second time founders some only want to invest in developers you get the idea um is never underestimate anybody yeah, uh, I think you underestimate people at your peril. Everybody's awkward when they start. And so don't I, I like to not underestimate anybody if I had a choice, take the 20 30 minute meeting for our firm or not take the meeting. Yeah, because when that company fails, if, if it's super obvious, oh my god, this founder has picked the uh, social coordination app. Remember that one? Oh, you know, it's really hard yeah. planning to go out with your friends. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, people are hard to coordinate. And it's like, I have an app that'll solve that. It's like the apps, it's not a software problem. It's not gonna, yeah. That, that's a people it's a problem. Problem. Mm -hmm. it's a human problem. It's a human problem. Literally every year, you will have a dozen people say, this is the app where everybody plans their vacation together. Everybody plans their weekend out. And it never works. Right. And we get why it doesn't that work. It's called iMessage. It's iMessage. And it, you know, <laughs> iMessage is as frustrating. And they always have iMessage in the deck. Yeah. iMessage, you see, like, have, have you ever had this experience? You're like, yes. And it's like, wouldn't you like to have this? And you're like, yes, I would like it to be easier. So great problem. Yeah. What, and then it's like, the solution is, get all your friends to download this app, and then ra stack rank their, you know, what they want to do this weekend, and da, 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 and then split the bill. And I'm like, okay, so I just made everybody fill out a form and do work to go out this weekend. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. Sorry. No. <laughs> so anyway, um well it's interesting because you'll get better at that and that yeah. person might realize it and then come up with something that's a breakthrough right exactly Don't like the 20 minute meeting has mattered because the other the other primary learning for me like early 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 on president mike savino mm. was like oh if you want to be a great vc have a hundred founder meetings yeah that'll get you there it's so true mm -hmm. i actually haven't I'm, I'm working on a linkedin post that's sort of like mm. you know job one yeah, year it. one job review or whatever yeah. and one of the things i want to do is at count up how many meetings slash pitches <laughs> overall including our accelerator and founder um founder you pitches there were mm -hmm. because oh my god that yeah. like simple thing is so true because the more you have the more you start to like the more you start to have the moment in the meeting where you're like oh i know where this is going yep no one's going yeah. and i never want to like i don't want to get cynical and assume it's going to go there but like now patterns are emerging. Sure. Or I could mean, be like, ooh, that's a really you, small market. Or ooh, that's project-based revenue. Or, you know, like I hear myself saying these things and thinking them now and I'm like, I'm learning. 
if Bob Iger has been in the entertainment industry for a long time and somebody says, I have a great idea for a TV show or a film mm-hmm. and it's a love story. And he's like, okay, love story. Yep. I produced 16 of those in the last decade. Yeah. And it's, it takes place in, in outer space. I was like, okay, yeah, I got those. <laughs> and uh, there's a twist. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, here are all the classic twists. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they have the mental model. They know mm-hmm. it. And that doesn't mean they're not going to film, you know, what will be, you know, then the Star Wars for a new generation, the Star Trek for a new generation, the Sopranos, the Goodfellas. I mean, the Godfather, the Casino, like you can just stack all the different prime uh, family dramas that have existed in in cinema and film and yeah that doesn't mean we don't want to make a new one right we could make another one but but, but it's got to be good <laughs> but what's the twist right what's your what's, what's your service on top of the camera twist like give sure. me just the little extra yeah exactly absolutely yeah all right what were the top episodes were, were there episodes that you look back on and you say hey just we'll whip through these real quick that so yeah. people can then go look at them themselves but anything you think that were interesting well, I will add quickly that this week in climate startups was a whole other vector, right? There's our learning oh, yes. organization and all of that. And then there was doing these 50 odd interviews mm, yeah. all year long, like yes. John Doerr, Albert Wenger, Jason Jacobs from My Climate Journey, some of the climate mm. VCs who got me interested in the space when I started reporting on this, Seth Bannon from 50VC, Jay Coe from Lightsmith. So I also got to have all these incredible conversations with investors and founders. I learned among other things that mushrooms are the future. So mm. just a phenomenal, like it's a, you know, it's a dual track job and yeah. both of those tracks, like just fed my brain all year long. Right. So top episodes, awesome. I have the producers pull this. Now we do have to acknowledge, and you made this point that maybe the interviews added to the traffic here. Yeah. But well, these are just YouTube. These are just YouTube views. But these so are just YouTube views. We went and picked like the top aside, three. Yeah. yeah. That so we just think, in terms of top views, we don't have to go over the views because yeah. you know, it's also on podcasts and clips and everything. But exactly, um, but so it's hard to tell because you also get the algorithm. But it still means something. It still means something. And I yeah. just looking back, I was like, these are actually all really great. These are great topics. One, why some VCs won't invest in first time founders. It was which episode fifteen twenty eight? Very kind of got to that. Like founders are winging it. Question. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, why VCs care about ownership percentage? And this is mm-hmm. when we did our like bet sizing, I think, or yeah. showing kind of the, and that again, like thinking in multiples, mm. right? Ownership percentage leads to this multiple. And then if you get this multiple yeah. and then you own this much yep. and the, my son and I now play a really fun, um, we play the math game, ah, like great. figure awesome. out the valuation on the fly in the car on the way home yeah. from school. That's what freaking nerds we are now. And awesome. then focus, focus, focus. We talked about the self-destructive traits of VCs and founders, how mm-hmm. like your own confirmation bias plays in. As a VC, yep, and as a founder, and that one came it was super from interesting. Somebody, you know, I had tweeted like, "Hey, what do you want us to talk about on the show?" And somebody said, "Self-destructive traits of VCs and founders," and mm-hmm. and that's a long list. Yep, it's a long yeah, list. It was uh, a long people list. People are their own worst enemies at times. Yes, so, uh, definitely. I always keep that in mind. Um, is our, you know, our, our? Am I the villain? Am I the problem here? You got to make sure you're not your own blocker. So definitely watch that one. Um, yeah, that's a really yeah, good all, one. Well, great. Going to, going to conferences instead of building products and delighting customers. I mean, when you like see the good, exposed like brick in the lobby. Yeah. I like a good junket too. I, I get it. But if you're in year one of your company, you don't have product market fit. You haven't earned you know, going to a bunch of speaking gigs unless you go to that speaking gig and you calculate I'm out of the office for 72 hours. It costs four thousand um, dollars, and I got ten leads, and we converted right. two. And our average customer va- lifetime value is four thousand. So if I can just keep one of those two, it was worth it. Okay, yeah. Now then you have to compare that to well, if I did, um, you know, four phone calls a day with customers, and I did twelve customer calls, would that have been a better use of time? Because then. Right. It's, you know, I got 10 leads going live, but I got 12 leads staying home, or it would probably be even more, right? What, so whatever it is, um, you just, you, you have to be thoughtful. And mm-hmm. sometimes people are reactive and they don't think uh, that their time is precious. Your time is precious. There was just a Founder University episode on time boxing, making decisions uh, by Kelly, who is co-leading um, Founder University with Presh at our firm and founder.university to read it. To hear it and they'll put a blog post up about it as well it's so important for you to be ruthless with your calendar you you came in pretty ruthless and you got even more ruthless so that was always been 
like that. So I'm that, kind that, of a, that, I'm that's a murderer about my time. Successful as a as a human being on planet Earth, but um, my Lord. your time your time is your. This is my lesson to everyone. Your time is unobtainium. It is the most <laughs> precious substance in the universe. No more. more of it will ever be created. Nope. Don't I'm counting down. Waste it. Don't waste it. Don't waste it wisely. All right, listen. It's been great. Congratulations on your first year. Uh, you have a Don Julio tonight on a Friday night. Thanks I'm going to get out shot, on that mountain man. and do. Uh, well, you know, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, sincerely, the 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 year on the podcast has been a lot of fun for me. You it's know, really fun. It was uh, great to do the podcast alone for all those years. Uh, having you here for the for the last year, uh, it's made it great. Make it more fun, you know. And I'm trying to have more fun. And uh, yeah, this is that's what the hell behind you is all about. All right, and we have one last. Uh, yeah, if I, can get, I try to do the executive program. This is what I do. I tell yeah. them start my meetings. I do two hours in the afternoon. Start my meetings at four twenty. Heyo, heyo. So every, I get that. I do that joke every call, and so <laughs> I'm like, it's four twenty. Never it's gets time old. To take a meeting. It never, never gets, gets old. old. Jokes get funnier the more often you tell them. That's just true. That's that is that is the, that is the core true. tenet of a dad joke of a dad <laughs> joke. So, but the the, the the mountain closes at four. So if I get that um, last run in at the top of the mountain to get back to the house, to get the boots off, and then my hair's like crazy from the helmet. Coming in hot to every meeting. <laughs> I'm coming up, whoa, hot toddy or you know, some buttered rum, uh, you know, hot I like chocolate. That, I like that you could make it 4.30, but in no. service of the joke, you can't. I don't. I just, I tell Heidi, 4.20. All right. Let's uh, all, right, all enjoy this next uh, interview. All right, today's uh, This Week in Climate Startups episode actually has a fellow VC joining me, not a startup, but an investor. Valerie Shen is a partner and COO at G2 Venture Partners, which is a venture and growth investing firm focused on emerging technologies that drive sustainable transformation in these really traditional industries. They're really trying to like, it's sort of the the climate tech version of, you know, find an industry that's still using fax machines and clipboards and modernize it. That's what they're doing, except in the sustainable way. And G2 Venture Partners is big. It is a firm that spun out of Kleiner Perkins in 2017 by its billion-dollar green growth fund partners, David Mount, Brooke Porter, Ben Cortling, and Daniel Oros. Previously, Valerie herself was an analyst at Kleiner Perkins Green Growth Fund. She helped the team found G2 and then went back after going off and getting an MBA at Stanford University, like you do. So Valerie is really good at this. And we're going to have a great conversation coming up right now. Valerie Shen is a partner and COO at G2 Venture Partners, which is a venture and growth investing firm focused on emerging technologies, driving sustainable transformation across traditional industries. Valerie, welcome to This Week in Climate Startups. Thanks for having me. Excited to have this conversation with you. Um, how do you feel about that description of what you guys are doing and how would you make that more specific for us? What, what is G2VP really focused on? I think the description is pretty good. I hope you probably got it from something that we wrote at some point. What we're really focused on is the idea that there are a lot of technologies that have been created for all sorts of use cases, from consumer purposes to people just tinkering around on their own to commercial scale processes that can be applied to more old school industrial sectors that traditionally have been analog in ways that make these sectors a lot more efficient, which is good for the bottom line, makes those companies more profitable, but is also great for the environment because we're working in sectors that tend to be very resource intensive and heavy asset. Can you give me some examples of investments you've made that have transformed some of those old, old industries? Yeah, I think the best example would probably be in the transportation sector. So in transportation, you have a world where we used to have everyone driving their own vehicle, which had an internal combustion engine and was only used 4% of the time. And we're moving towards a future where vehicles should be connected, electric, shared, and autonomous. And all of these different trends work together and help each other out. One of our examples in this space was in Proterra, an electric bus company that we invested in way back in the day. And the idea there was we believe that transit buses and commercial vehicles were the segments of transportation that would electrify first. And the idea is they have big fundamental economic advantages over diesel engines because these are heavy vehicles that would have taken a lot of gas to be powered and are driven 
a much higher percentage of the time than individual people's vehicles. And therefore, they would probably be the ones that would go electric first. So we invested behind this thesis more than 10 years ago, helped the company through a number of different processes, helped bring in Daimler as a, as a strategic partner, which ended up becoming a great partnership for the company. And Proterra has since transitioned from just making electric buses towards also making electric powertrains and just expanding their business and helping with electrification for the sector overall. Perfect. And then we should go back to the beginning here and say that G2VP is a firm that spun out of Kleiner Perkins in 2017 uh, as part of its buy. It's let's see and raised it's a billion dollar fund, right? With and growth partners, David Mount, Brooke Porter, Ben Cortling, and Daniel Oros originally spun yeah. it out in 2017. So it's continuing that kind of legacy that, of course, John Doerr created. That's correct. So the history of our firm is our partners came together at that green growth fund that you mentioned at Kleiner Perkins. Billion dollar fund started in 2008. Initially, we were investing just in clean energy, but then very quickly realized that solving the climate challenge and also just great investment opportunities are not just in energy, but rather in a broad range of sectors, including transportation, like we just discussed, but also food and agriculture, industrials, logistics, manufacturing, and expanding to those sectors. In 2017, we had finished investing in the Green Growth Fund, and that was when we decided to spin out and create G2 Venture Partners as a separate firm. So raised our first fund in 2017. That was a $350 million fund. Last year in 2021, we finished investing that first fund across 15 companies and then raised our second fund, which is $500 million. And that's what we're investing out of today. Gotcha. And you were at the Green Growth Fund before, right? You were an analyst before uh, becoming a partner at G2? That's correct. I worked with the team at the Green Growth Fund in the last year that we were there before spinning out. So doing a lot of the initial setup work for creating G2 as a new firm. And then what's your category within this larger thesis? Do you guys do break it out by like beats as we as we say in, the, yeah. in my last job in the journalism world? We're very collaborative in how we work. So I think this is actually something that's quite unique about our team where we kind of have swim lanes in terms of what sectors people are more experts in. But almost every sector, we have multiple people at the firm who would be considered experts. So there's never one person who's the person who gets to make all of the decisions in a space. Every deal that we have, there's at least one lead partner and then also a catalyst partner who's the assigned devil's advocate to bring additional thoughts and insights into that investment decision, but then also for the life of the investment to always stay close and be a sounding board for the lead deal partner. And that's all to say, so as a result of that, there's not you know the transportation person or the energy person or anything like that. So I'm the chief operating officer of the firm, and a lot of what I do is helping the firm run as an entity. So things from recruiting and managing our HR processes to fundraising, LP relations, and then also a lot of our work around impact, ESG, what it really means to be working in climate and how we should be thinking about impact measurement and reporting. And how do you think about that? What kind of measurement and reporting do you do? Because these are, like you said, it's heavy industry. I would imagine it is the kind of thing that you can measure in tons and gigatons, I hope. Exactly. So we think about it as both the quantitative pieces and the qualitative piece. On the quantitative piece, by far the most important metric for our limited partners is the carbon emissions piece. And because our companies are really working in these heavy asset industries often, we're thinking about it as what is the carbon impact of the product or service that the company is producing? We don't worry so much about their internal operations. So what people think of as scope one or two emissions in terms of is the company using, you know, proper electric, like using the right lighting to make sure that they are saving emissions on their own office space? Are they helping people carpool to work? Things like that we think are important, but by far the more important piece for our company is what are they producing and how are the companies that are using their products or services saving carbon emissions? We also care a lot though about just the impact story behind it or what we think of as our impact thesis for how is this going to facilitate a version of the future that is cleaner and greener, even if that individual company, it's hard to attribute a carbon savings to it. So an example here would be LIDAR for autonomous vehicles. We believe that a future of transportation with autonomy is going to be much more sustainable than one without. 
in part because autonomy facilitates shared vehicles, it facilitates electric vehicles, it just facilitates fewer accidents and more efficient driving. It's hard to say today that each unit of LiDAR that you sell for an autonomous vehicle has X number of tons of carbon emissions. But because it's part of that whole picture, we believe it has strong impact. And part of our impact reporting is to tell those stories so that everyone understands. And then do you consider that more of a narrative? It's a narrative challenge, it sounds like. You're really trying to put the storytelling behind it to understand. Because I think we have moved in recent years into this realization that if you know the sort of first round of climate tech investing was really focused on solar, that there are a lot of different ways to kind of slice the baloney. A lot of companies that baloney feels like an unfortunate climate analogy there somehow, but I'll come back to that. Um, but a lot of companies that wouldn't, like a LIDAR company or even a meat alternative company that wouldn't have been obviously a climate company, now clearly fit into that lens, but it could take a little explaining. Exactly. We think that that piece is actually quite important, just expanding the lens of what might count as climate tech. When we started working together as a team in 2008, it was just energy. And then we added all of these different sectors over time. We recently started looking at the carbon markets, you know, potentially looking at carbon accounting or carbon offset companies. We've also been looking at the future of work because we think that a lot of how we work really impacts the emissions of our work and the things that we're doing. We've also started looking at retail and e-commerce. Just clothing is a 10% emitter in terms of carbon in the world. So that's another sector where if you can clean it up and reuse clothes or somehow encourage people to not buy as much new clothing, that can be pretty impactful. And these are all sectors that we probably would not have been able to tell you in 2010 would be in scope for us. And I think that in 2030, there are going to be sectors that we would consider climate tech that we don't know of yet today. So continuing to push the boundaries and making sure that the things that we're investing in have a true impact story, but being willing to expand beyond what might be initially what you think of as climate tech. I mean, it's kind of exciting in some ways, especially I think since you um, get to invest in your thesis encompasses the physical world in such a distinct way that, that it's almost like you can look around a room that you're in because really every company at some point now is a climate company or should be, right? Exactly. I think there's a piece that is really important in what you just said, which is we don't think that maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, there's going to be a separate group of climate tech investors versus non-climate investors. It's almost like everything is related to the internet these days, whereas back when it first started, there was a group of separate internet investors. I think that there are many sectors within climate tech where having the expertise and having the networks and having worked in the space for a long time is hugely important. But I think that increasingly, we're going to see a blurring of the lines between climate tech investing and non-climate tech investing. On the piece you said about physical stuff, one thing that we like to joke and uh, trying to describe what we invest in is if it somehow touches on something that you can drop on your foot and hurt yourself, then it's probably in scope. Right? It's <laughs> physical stuff. Amazing. The companies that we invest in might be software, they might be hardware, they might be software-enabled hardware, very just different business models, but ultimately they touch on something in the real world. Or in the case of Proterra, a bus that could drive over your foot, which hopefully yes. will never happen. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully never. Talk to me about the, the, the challenges and opportunities in that kind of physical world investing, because I, there are, I think, plenty of VCs now and plenty of climate tech investors. And I'm one of them who are saying like, that is really hard. Like, talk to me about how you sort of determine which of these categories are investable even when they're in really hard spaces that might burn a lot of money up front. The piece that you just mentioned, burning a lot of money up front, is <laughs> one of the core aspects for us. We typically you, invest... You look for that. You're like, yes, please. <laughs> well, I don't know that we're looking for that specifically. So where our fund plays is typically starting around Series B to Series D. We're investing in companies that have a product or service that already works. So they've already built the pilot project. They're definitely done with R&D. They've found some amount of product market fit. They have a handful of beginning customers or sometimes many customers already who have tried the product and we can talk to these customers and confirm why they love it. So in that way, we've already avoided the uncertain R&D that might cost a ton of money and really have unpredictable timelines and total capital needs. Got it. We they will have burned. They will have burned through my money by the time they get to you. 
<laughs> your money or maybe research money from the government. We think that the new Inflation Reduction Act is very powerful in our sectors. It actually doesn't substantially change the course of action for most of our existing companies or the companies that we are investing in today, because the companies that we're investing in are already a little later stage. But what it means is there will be many more companies in a year, maybe two years, three years that will be in our investable space because they'll be able to have taken this IRA money and done that initial R&D to get to a point where it makes sense to more commercialize. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really, really big point, which is that we have found ourselves in recent years with all of this money rushing into climate tech investing and this sense of urgency at a place where it, you know, it may not be appropriate for early stage venture to be funding pre-commercialization technology. And that there is now this kind of really important layer of R&D, government-funded R&D that can de-risk technologies before it gets to the public sector, whether early stage or later. Exactly. I think the government piece is very important. I think there are also funds like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, yeah. where they have a longer time horizon. They may or may not necessarily need to make sure that every investment is going to return capital, and they can help with a lot of that early stage funding. We've invested in companies where Breakthrough did earlier rounds and got them to a point where we're now comfortable. So we think there's room in the space for all sorts of different types of investors. How do you think about, um, as you see this space expanding, like GTV, obviously Kleiner was at this for a very long time. GTVP has been around for a really long time, relatively speaking, in the climate investing space. How do you think about what you're seeing now and, and this kind of moment that we're in that's almost like, a bubble within the larger investing world. There's definitely a lot of interest right now in climate tech. So if you compare what's happening today to what happened even not that long ago when we were first raising our fund in 2016. Back then, green was almost a dirty word. You couldn't say it because if you said that you were a green fund, there were limited partners who were somehow scared away and assumed that it meant it was definitely concessionary returns. Right. So way less LP dollars that were interested, way fewer relevant companies or people that wanted to work in the space, but also less competition. If we saw a company that we were interested in, chances are we were the only VCs that were talking to them or had any expertise in the space. If you fast forward to today, we are constantly getting inbound from limited partners who are excited to deploy money in the climate tech space and for whom having impact and being able to make money is both something that they realize is compatible with each other and something that's really important for them, right? Especially if you're looking at family offices or people where the younger generations are taking over and really care. So large influx of money, you're seeing that with all of the new venture funds that are being created to focus in this space. There's also an influx of companies that are playing in this space. There's a lot more opportunities for us to look at. We now screen more than 2,000 companies a year compared to just several hundred probably when we first started. And then also a lot more talent looking to go into this space. We're also getting calls all the time from classmates or younger students that we mentor or people that you know we've worked with for years that are saying, I really want to work on climate. So they're starting companies or they are the people that entrepreneurs can hire. And so there's a lot more happening in the ecosystem, a lot more opportunity. I think there is also a fact, which is that now we are seeing some amount of competition. When we see a deal, we're no longer the only ones that want to do it. And what that means for us is we're really taking our industrial network and the expertise that we've gained over the last couple of decades and using that to convince entrepreneurs why it's important to work with us. And there are a lot of things about climate tech that still make it different than what you would think of as traditional, purely digital venture investing. And I think one of the key pieces is the extent to which you really have to work with the old school industrial players. So often, when you think about starting a company like Facebook, this is a totally new space where you're just coming in and creating something new. Whereas if you think about innovation in energy or transportation or logistics and manufacturing, generally, you're not doing something from nothing and just going off on your own. You're working with the old school incumbents, either as partners or they're your customers or your collaborator. So having expertise and having experience working with them and having that network is really powerful. And I think that's 
a key piece of what we believe makes successful climate tech investing. Can you break that that down a little bit more, unpack, like give me some examples of what you mean when you talk about working with these old school industries. Like if you were to fund uh, an all electric high speed rail, they'd have to work with Amtrak. Like, is this a network you have that you can connect founders to? So maybe let's talk about an example Luminar. So one of our companies, they make LiDAR for autonomous oh, yeah. vehicles. I know them. I've so, been to that funny castle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fun. Uh, so Luminar, for example, when we first started thinking about this, this was maybe about five years ago, we had a feeling that LiDAR was going to be an important piece of the autonomous vehicle question or solutions. But it was unclear which company was going to win because there were several dozen players that were interested in trying to create LiDAR solutions. So what we did was we talked to a few dozen players in the industry. And this is the auto OEMs who would ultimately be the ones that are purchasing LiDAR. This would be experts in the space who have worked at various different LiDAR or autonomy companies. This might be suppliers, other people throughout the value chain. And then we asked them, are you going to buy LiDAR? Is that a piece of your autonomy solution? Everyone said yes. And then what exactly do you need for your LiDAR solution? And they gave us metrics around cost, around quality, around weight, around the type of technology that they were going to use. And through that, we were able to map out all of the companies that existed in the space. Luminar was the only one that was meeting the metrics that we had specifically heard from the auto ODMs and other more old school industrial players were what was needed to win. I get it. And then post-investment, we were able to take these strategic relationships and help make introductions that would lead to partnerships um, for Luminar and for some of our other portfolio companies. And then that's the value add after investment combined with the expertise and resources that we have for diligence, we think is a pretty important piece to climate tech investing and why it requires all of that industrial network. Right. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yes, of course. Like a diligence and a support network. And then making and maintaining those relationships in industries that could potentially see you or your companies as like a danger or competition. Yeah, I think a very good example of that is in the utility space, where there's a lot of different players that are trying to disrupt utilities in various ways. But the ones that are going to be the most successful are probably ones that are not trying to come in and say, we're going to take over the old utilities and we're going to try to make you obsolete. I actually don't even know how you would possibly be able to do that. But rather ones who have figured out a way to partner with the utilities and having experience, having worked with utilities over the decades, selling them various different solutions, that's pretty helpful for the portfolio companies as they're going off and doing this on their own. How do you incorporate that strategy, if at all, into your hiring? And how do you... How are you making those contacts when you need new ones? Because it, there's also the part where sort of like new disruptive climate technologies are being invented. All that, like you wouldn't, again, have thought the meat industry was at risk from a climate tech company. So a few things that we do. One is we have a number of these industrial strategics as our limited partners. So, for example, Daimler, Shell, Mitsui, ABB. They are investors in our fund, and then we have active dialogue with them. So we're learning from them all the time. We're introducing them to companies that could be relevant and interesting. They're introducing us to people in their network and their various peers, and that network sort of grows over time. I think another big piece is we're quite active board members and engaged with our portfolio companies. So if we have a company that's selling to dozens and dozens of utilities, through that process, we're also going to develop relationships with perhaps new utilities that we didn't previously know. And of course, we're going to introduce the company to utilities in our network. So that then expands our network so that when the next company comes along that might be selling a different product to utilities, we now have a broader set of connections that we can help them with. And then we're also going to get some new connections through that process. Yeah, that's a really, really good secret sauce in some ways that it's would be easy for you to share because it's going to be really, really hard for other companies and new investors to do that work, that legwork and make all of those relationships. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to replicate. We we love that there's more involvement and engagement in this space, but we also think there's something special about having been in the space for two decades that even if you are an awesome investor, if you're coming new into 
working on climate, it's just never going to be exactly the same. It's also just really valuable because I think nobody wants to see like one, I think we all want to start seeing exits that prove the these theses <laughs> and continue to sort of like support the amount of money that's coming into climate tech. And also there's a possible there's a possibility that some of that new money coming into climate tech investing could make some bad decisions and we don't want a like a bad PR cascade to result yes. from from that. That's really important, right? Because in the first wave of clean tech, what a lot of people call clean tech 1.0, there were a number of great companies that were created and invested in. So Tesla is one example. We also have one in our portfolio, Enphase, which makes microinverters for rooftop solar systems, turning DC electricity into AC, most valuable solar company in the world now, been through a lot of ups and downs. So there were definitely quite a few winners in that space. But then there was also temporarily, at least a narrative that climate or clean energy is where you lose a lot of money. And I think that caused a lot of harm for a while, where a lot of people left the space and companies were struggling to get funding. So the worst thing probably that could happen with this wave of people who don't really have climate tech experience coming into climate tech is if they invest in companies that then somehow taint the general vibe around the space. I don't think that's going to happen because I think that there's enough awesome climate tech companies that are going to survive um, and are going to thrive. But that was, and that's definitely still a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now that there's a lot more attention on it, potentially. Yeah. Tell me what you think is, I've been sort of trying to ask all of the investors that I have on the show, uh, a two-part question. One, what do you think that, what do you think is particularly interesting, exciting, and investable? in this category? And then two, what do you think we're maybe wasting some time on? One thing that we really want to make an investment in is the carbon accounting space, or more broadly, ESG tracking measurement. There's just so much talk right now about measuring what matters. And we all believe or agree that carbon and impact and ESG metrics really matter. And we've looked at a number of different players in the space. And they all have ver various strengths and weaknesses. There doesn't yet seem to be a consensus on what exactly is the right tool going to look like? What exactly does everyone need? What are the standards going to be? But I believe that within the next decade or two, there's going to be some amount of standardization, almost like we have standardization around financial metrics and the companies that can be built around helping that happen and then helping all the other people sort of fulfill those requirements, that's going to be a pretty powerful system. This is my obsession. Welcome to my actual oh. daily obsession. And to your point earlier about trying to figure out what are going to be the metrics for success. Uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. Well, <laughs> I look someone... forward to hearing what you decide. And I know, maybe exactly. I'll just follow what you... Yeah, let's just let's talk after we'll talk offline about this. Um, Sounds because great. yes, I totally agree. Uh, and then what do you think? There's always a lot of fish swimming in the same direction in, in VC, generally, as an industry. Is there anything that you think you're going to let everybody else handle? One thing that probably falls in that category is hydrogen. We have looked at a lot of different hydrogen companies, and I don't want to preclude us from ever making an investment in this space, but we have not yet found anything where the unit economics makes sense especially when you think about transportation of just people and goods across land. Okay, so like a hydrogen-powered vehicle, it's hard for us to see how that's going to scale and be profitable. And there seem to be a lot of people that are interested in the space. We get a lot of pitches related to hydrogen, but we're so far a little bit skeptical. If I could have picked two answers uh, to those two questions, those would have been the exact same ones, Valerie. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I know, totally. Aligned, I'm like, okay, I feel validated. <laughs> maybe it means, though, that our answers are too consensus to be relevant or unique, but let's see. I, mean, I don't know. I still see a lot of money. We were just talking about how I think it's like only 13% of all of these climate dollars have gone into measurement and metrics thus far as this kind of like new, you know, 2.0 boom has been happening. And I'm like, really, that feels like a lot of blue sky for me and for you. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of blue sky. There are a lot of companies being created in the space. So yes. I think that the benefit of this is there are a lot of people trying a lot of different things and there's no shortage of options. 
what there's a shortage of right now is consistency and standardization. So I hope that that's going to happen soon because right now there's so much time wasted, right? Like we have limited partners who all give us different forms to fill out around impact because these are their honest attempts at coming up with what is the best data to measure. And then in order to try to gather that information, we send requests to our portfolio companies who then tell us that they're getting five different requests from five different VCs who are all asking for different information. And then you just realize, you know, of course people are annoyed about measuring impact and carbon because they have to do it so many times. Imagine if they had to come up with different financial statements for every investor that would never scale. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but fortunately, many people trying. Yep. Love it. Well, if I find anybody good, I will definitely send them your way for following. Please do. <laughs> Valerie Shen is a partner and COO at G2 Venture Partners. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to talk to you as well. Thanks for making time for this. All right, that's it, everybody. The final Sunday show of 2022 is in the books. It lasted about this long this year. It went <laughs> that fast. That fast, but more what? episodes to come. We're going to do like a, a year roundup, some predictions. Yeah. We're we not going to leave you, you podcast lists over the break. You'll just check your feeds. Some great stuff coming. That's right. Have a great rest of the weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.